Hi, this is Meditatio Conversations, and today we are going to listen to a panel discussion with Professor Thomas Halleck and Professor Charles Taylor. This is part of a Meditatio seminar on spirituality on a secular society in Prague, 2016. Professor Charles Taylor will be one of the speakers in the next John Main seminar in September in Belgium. More information at www.jms2018.org jms2018.org uh, I have a question for uh, Professor Halik. Um, when you were talking about uh, St. Therese or Theresia, I couldn't help but see uh, a link there between her approach and uh, what we can see that Pope Francis is doing these days when you talked about uh, solidarity, openness, acceptance of seekers as brothers. So would you, would you see any connection or link there? Is he following this heritage? It's a very interesting idea. <laughs> uh, completely new for me. Uh, but uh, I think yes, 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 of course. Uh, this solidarity with uh, the suffered people, with the poor people, um, yes, this solidarity behind all uh, frontiers and uh, with people of uh, another, um, another faith, another religion, and he wash it in the, um, the food of, of this Muslim, uh, Muslim girl during uh, Easter, uh, it is a very similar gesture of this solidarity. Yes, I, I, I'm deeply uh, convinced that with Pope Francis, uh, the new chapter in the history of Christianity is beginning, a new style. Uh, which is uh, really inspiring for many people, not only for Catholics. Uh, many of my Protestant friends, uh, many of my Protestant friends told me we are perhaps no more Protestant. We have nothing to protest against this Pope. <laughs> Accept him absolutely. So he's also our Pope. <laughs> uh, so um, and I think he, he has the deep respect. To, to, to other churches and to other faces and to the seekers. Yes, I think this is something which is authentical and which is connected with this little path of the Therese. Yeah. So, please, next question here. Um, just to follow on a little bit from, from that, would you describe or, or how would you uh, respond to the comment that the current scandal of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church is its dark night of the, of, of the church? Dark night of the church, isn't it? Uh, yes, I think this uh, dark night and the crisis is not only on the individual level. There are some collective nights of uh, the soul and of the spirit. And I think the 20th century as such was a uh, collective dark night and uh, for, for, for the uh, humanity. And also there are some very critical time uh, for, the, for, for, for the church. 
I think uh, all these things about uh, um, abuse and, and all these scandals, uh, it's also a, a cross. But on the, other, on the other hand, I don't believe in a church without wounds. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, the, the wounded church, the uh, church which is not uh, absolutely um, uh, perfect. This is the authentic church. We are on the, on the journey. We are sinners, um, so we cannot accept all evil in the church, but. Um, Mm, we must uh, have the realistic view that uh, the church is also the wounded church, and and uh, we have also uh, our wounds, and uh, and we are also uh, sometimes um, wounded by the church. <laughs> so, please, next questions. Thank you, Dr. Taylor and Dr. Halleck, uh, for your compelling lectures. I, um, so I, have a, uh, I want to put you in conversation with the Gospel of Mark. Uh, you've so, both of you quoted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and so I wonder if in some ways the Gospel of Mark wouldn't be a useful point of triangulation between the two threads that, that you are each are presenting. Uh, the reason I say that is I think about that occurs in Mark chapter 14, uh, the first half of Mark is more or less dedicated to sh answering the question, who is this? Well, this is the Messiah. The second half of the Gospel of Mark is dedicated to the question of what kind of Messiah is this? This is a self-giving Messiah, mm -hmm. uh, one who suffers, where things are upside down, where you give your life uh, to in order to or lose your life in order to gain it. And, and, but within the context of this narrative of the self-giving Messiah, where everything's upside down, you have the cry of dereliction. And in, in a sense, if we, if we think of, say, a, a, a Thomas Torrance reading or Karl Barth reading of Gospel Mark, it might be something like this, that Jesus is actually expressing his full humanity, fullest humanity, at the point of self-giving, at the climax of the Gospel, but also his ideal and fullest humanity at the, cry, at the cry of dereliction, which I think very much strengthens your argument. And then I'm also wondering about the empty tomb and, and no, no Jesus there. That's, that's a very interesting thing. But here's a question. Is there a sense, if we go with that, is there a sense in which the embrace of doubt is a self-giving act? Or is it, is it um, or to put this other ways, is there a kind of selfishness in refusing to embrace doubt? That's a question for both of you. <laughs> I think it is the canotic way, this wounded faith, this uh, faith which is uh, uh, deprived of this uh, certainty and self-confidence. And uh, uh, it is also the participation on the cross. And um, we uh, spoke about it um, yesterday, about uh, how to interpret this cry of Jesus, uh, my God, my God, why do you forsaken me? Um, I read uh, a nice interpretation, deep interpretation, that in Hebrew, Hebrew it means, uh, for what reason have you forsaken me? 
and uh, uh, and that this cry of Jesus is is uh, the question and the prayer. It is not just the expression of despair. It's a question: Why? What is the reason of this? And it is also a prayer. Some of our questions should become prayer, and some of our prayer are sometimes questions. <laughs> and I think uh, this is the very deep question of Jesus, and uh, the resurrection is the mysterious answer to this question, for why reason uh, it is. And um, uh, Johann Baptist Matt, Matt um, uh, wrote uh, once that uh, if in our preaching about uh, uh, resurrection is uh, not uh, possible to, to listen to hear the cry of the crucified one, there is just a miss about uh, the victory, it is not the Christian theology. So I think uh, uh, resurrection is not a happy end. It's just the mysterious answer to this question. And this question is, uh, um, I think this question, my God, why do you forsaken me? It is uh, the, another expression of this sentence, he descended into hell. He ascended into this um, into this distance from 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 God, absolute distance of God. So he go also through this uh, most radical darkness and uh, and uh, absence of of God and so on. He accepted all of this and this most tragic. Uh, uh, aspect of the human being, and but it is not the last word. Uh, one Czech uh, poet, Jan Zahradníček, who was also the prisoner in the uh, communist time, uh, wrote a, a wonderful uh, poem, and there is a verse that the totalitarian regimes try to stop uh, the history in the afternoon of Good Friday. And we should, um, we should show that the history is going on, that Good Friday is important part of our story, uh, and death and suffering is important part of, uh, uh, part of human, uh, human destiny, of, 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 of the human, human story, but it is not the end. Okay, okay, please, next questions. There. I would maybe uh, like to ask question, Mr. Taylor. I really liked your approach when you started with, I don't know if I could say secular man and the ways to go to spirituality. Uh, would you maybe say something more about what are the motivations for this spirituality? I really liked the way you said that maybe there is a need for self-transcendence. So could you maybe say something more in that sense? What, what, what? Because maybe in past, maybe motivation was there is transcendent being to which I want to somehow connect. Now, when there isn't this, I want to self-transcend myself. So what are the motivations then? Or what is what yeah. this? Yeah, I mean, I think that the, the big question that arises in 
almost everyone's life at some point is, uh, I use this Peggy Lee song in my book, is that all there is, right? So, is that all there is to life? So you may start off with just accepting all the desires and goals, success and so on around, but there very often comes a moment when you ask, particularly if you're very successful, it can come the moment, but also if you fail, is that really what it's all about? Is that really all that human life is about? So it's that turn to question whether there's not some deeper meaning to life, <clears throat> which I think is at the heart of the, what people generally call spirituality. And I think this is just into our human condition. I mean, it's very hard to avoid this. People can only avoid this by, you know, getting kind of totally involved in some in some accepted goal and so on. And even then there are moments when they ask themselves, you know, has my life been really worthwhile? You know? So I think this is something that's recurring again and again. You can't predict that everyone will feel that, but you can confidently predict that that will always arise in human history. That's why the idea of an age beyond religion, you know, seems to me to be so unlikely. Um, Professor Taylor, um, you spoke about the three uh, distinctive um, uh, modes of uh, secular spirituality, and I just wondered if, I don't know what the academic words are, but I just want to throw in the word synthesis and, and ask, is there a, do you see a chance for traditional Christianity or, or indeed other religions, traditional religions, somehow supporting secular spirituality and, and, and there being some kind of synthesis to, to allow something bigger which will hold all of these things together sort of cohesively? And if yeah. so, have you got a clue as to how it might happen? Yeah. I mean, supporting uh, may not be exactly the word, but but there is, we have to recognize that um, there are moments when we're allied with people motivated by, sec by the secular spirituality in trying to change the world, transform the world. So I gave the example in my talk of the refugee crisis. Right? We want to make the response to that that we know from the gospel we ought to make and we find great trouble making. But what we find is alongside us, there are people who are working with us, motivated very strongly. So then we ask ourselves, what is it to build the kingdom? And it's not defined in the gospel simply in terms of the relationship to God. It's also defined very often like Matthew 25 in terms of feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in, in prison. So we have to recognize that this building of the kingdom, if you like, is something that a lot of people outside the church are involved in, and we have to go along with them. See, we have to link ourselves with them. And that brings with it a certain respect, a certain, a certain understanding. And in my view, you see, that relationship itself is part of building the kingdom. The fact that we can make those links 
and work together. We can create a kind of, uh, there's a kind of friendship that can be created. Whatever creates a real friendship is helping to build the kingdom. And if it can do that across these boundaries, then, you know, a fortiori. Thank you very much, both of you, for your talks. You both talked about the wounded nature of faith um, and uh, from an individual perspective. And I wondered if it also applies to the church as a whole, as an institution. And I'm thinking right now the church is not just wounded but bleeding to death in certain parts of the world. And we have lost our connection with our orthodox brothers and sisters, our original church roots, the churches of the East. And very soon, if things go on as there are, there will be no Christians left in the original heartlands of Syrian Antioch, in Byzantium, in Turkey, in Jerusalem, where we're in danger of losing Coptic churches, the Ethiopian church. Is now the time, following your own agenda of the woundedness, to recover these aspects of ourselves as an institution, as a whole Catholic Church, as the original whole Catholic Church, um, or doesn't that matter? Oh, it matters very much. I mean, it matters particularly because we get, you know, enclosed in our own churches and we can't talk to each other. And I think it's just very plain that this very, very dispersed and different, each part of this church has something to say to us. I mean, I've been... It's been clear to me for a long time that the Eastern Orthodox have aspects of the faith that we've lost, and maybe I think vice versa. So we have to come together again, and we have to extend this beyond the Chalcedonian churches, because I think it's true also of the Copts, and of course extend it beyond the, if you like, the Catholic uh, sacramental churches, and speak of relation to the to the Protestants. We all have something very important to to teach each other. And that's something that we, maybe we're much more conscious of it today. Now, what you touched on is something else very, very distressing, the wiping out of whole Christendoms in history. We're not at the, not the first of this. The Nestorian Christianity no longer exists, right? And there's no, now these other Christian churches, they will very much go on existing, but in many cases, no longer in their original home. You know, the, the home of Syrian churches is now mainly, you know, U.S., Canada, Australia. Uh, <clears throat> and they will go on and go on, but it's not, it's not at all the same thing as, as operating in their original context. The Coptic church is much, more, much stronger and more resilient than, <laughs> and much more numerous. Perhaps, if I may, uh, uh, for me the main reason why I have chosen the Catholic Church as my spiritual home was the inner plurality of the Catholic Church. Uh, there are so many spiritualities. Uh, there are so many religious orders, and the religious orders have some radiation of, 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 of spirituality, of culture, architecture, style also. You can uh, recognize the architecture style of the Cistercienses and uh, Capuccini and so on. And uh, also the liturgical and, 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 and uh, uh, different accent in uh, theology. Uh, and uh, all these religious orders are uh, compatible 
uh, if uh, the Jesuits will say we are the only Catholics and the Franciscans have no <laughs> place here, uh, there will be heretics. And I think this model uh, of this complementarity of spiritualities is something which should be the inspiration for the ecumenism. Uh, so that the other churches, in their differences, uh, are, uh, can uh, complete us. There is a uh, complementarity. There is not the unity in the sense of uh, uniformity. It's the unity, uh, this organic unity, like in the body. The St. Paul said the uh, I has a different role than uh, here and so on. Uh, so I think this complementarity is the model of uh, the ecumenism for. I cannot uh, imagine my theological thinking without Bonhoeffer and Tillich, and I cannot imagine my spirituality without some uh, orthodox inspiration and so on. And I think it's uh, many, many Christians are also, the, the Pope Benedict quoted uh, without any problems uh, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish uh, scholars and, and the Protestant scholars and so on. So I I think this exchange and this complementarity um, behind all the frontiers of denominations and churches is just uh, a, reality, a reality now. Okay. There. For me, I would like if you could expand on the transformation. I mean, we experience like Christianity is suffering tremendous in other parts of the earth right now. However, I feel Nazism and communism could not destroy the spirituality of this new phenomena we have right now. And I would like if you can expand what basically in the communist countries or areas in Europe how they came to be transformed to Christianity again. And maybe that model could be also applied to Africa and the Middle East, because there I don't think the spirit, or the will of the spirit is not dying, it's there. It's just sort of buried for the moment. So if you could expand on that, what you people think, what would rescue the churches also in these right now designated areas in Africa and the Middle East? It's hard to say. Um, I think uh, the main uh, transformation of the church before this pontificate of Pope Francis was the Vatican II. And uh, the acceptance of the Vatican II in the communist countries was very strange. Uh, it was on one side, it was very difficult to understand the message of the council for uh, the priests and theologians. They have no chance to study the theological background of the Vatican Council. Uh, so uh, the majority of priests and, and theologians here and so laymen, lay people, have no chance to study uh, Rahner, Ratzinger, Urs von Balthasar, Daniel Lusheni, and so on. And then uh, the results of the council came without this 
uh, this context like something from uh, from heaven. We, we just uh, we will just turn the altar, and we have uh, now the liturgy in the native language. But without this context of the ideas, it's something very superficial. But on the other hand, they were some uh, theologians, they were prepared, especially through their experience in the prison. Uh, in the prison, and there were so many uh, priests in the, in the prison and also our best theologians, and some of them accepted this uh, hard time as a purification of the church, as a sort of penance for this triumphalism under the Habsburg monarchy. And uh, I, uh, I often quote uh, one, um, one experience of one young man who was in, in, in prison with one bishop. And he knew this bishop from the time before. And then they were working manu uh, manually. And, and uh, uh, this man brought some material to the bishop uh, in the prison. And said, Excellency, there is a material for you. And he said, don't call me Excellency. And said, oh, how could I call you Excellency? And he said, call me brother. And I think this, this, this pass from excellencies to brothers was so important and I always warn it, warned uh, after the fall of communism we shouldn't go uh, the reverse way from, <laughs> from brothers to excellencies. Sometimes it happens. So, uh, and, uh, and in the prison they exercised the spontaneous ecumenism. They were there with Protestants, they were there with Jews, they were there also with some Marxists, non-conformist Marxists, and they recognized they have much in common. And, and they were dreaming about the poor church, serving church, open-minded, uh, ecumenical church. And they, oh, if perhaps sometime will come the uh, liberty of church, it must be the transformed church. And after they were released from prison, they received the first news about the Vatican Council. They said, oh, it is exactly the same. It's exactly the same we were dreamed about. So uh, this idea of the church and Vatican II, it is what we were dreamed about in prison. Uh, so they were, uh, they were prepared for this. Sometimes better than some people in the West. I remember when I was as a young convert, after uh, one year after my conversion, I was in Holland. It was 67. It was my first trip to West. It was the exchange between the Charles University and the Catholic University in Tilburg. And I said, oh, yes, I will see the Catholic University, you know. And I've got only one Catholic book uh, at the time. It was the uh, Maritain. And uh, then I asked the first evening in Holland, uh, do you have something from Maritain? And they said, oh, such of, uh, such of nonsense. Nobody, uh, nobody, uh, read, uh, for, for, nobody reads for, for, for 30, 30 years. We 
have now the discussion, God is dead, and he left his mausoleum, the Catholic Church, and our chaplain was just married, and we uh, organized the protest against the bishop, and so on, my God, what it is. <laughs> and, and, and when I returned, so I met some very conservative people, and they, look, this is the council, and this is the, uh, this is uh, the, um, work of 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 uh, of uh, the freemasons and so on <laughs> so i was in temptation to accept this uh, very conservative uh, version thanks to god the next year was the prague spring and i met uh, such of uh, priests they, they they came from prison and they understood the message of the council much deeper than those uh, adolescent reaction in, in in holland at that time uh, last month i was uh, in the tilburg university after almost 50 years so i I, I told them this my experience. Uh, so I think uh, the, the transformation of the church, it's, uh, yes, it's, 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 uh, it's a task of the church, but I'm a little bit afraid that many hopes were not fulfilled after the fall of communism. Sorry, I just want to say, like you say, the bishop was called in in prison, His Excellency. Mm. But there is such a saying that the church came down to earth. And I think also in Africa and the other parts, it will be the pain will be repaid when we come down to earth to the basics, mm. to the silence and to the sharing and love. Because the silence will create science to be loving a science which we don't have right now because science is, at times, I think, very egoistic. I am the inventor. I did this. Not that we did that. Hmm. Now we have the global yes. church, ne? and there right. will be the great exchange, and I'm, uh, I, I'm curious what will come from the African Christianity and, and uh, the Asian Christianity. There are some interesting theological impulses from Japan, for example, but uh, we will see. Okay, here. Thank you again, also to Professor uh, Taylor. Uh, my question to you is, uh, um, I'm a Bible translator and uh, the whole term of spirituality is, uh, especially in the Old Testament, is completely absent or foreign from the vocabulary uh, of the um, Israelite uh, of the Old Covenant, especially. But also in the New Testament, it's, it's uh, uh, summed up as a, a double commandment of love. Uh, love God, love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, so I wonder in... Uh, Contemporary discussions about spirituality, often spirituality, as, as you have mentioned, is uh, seen as a self-improvement or self-actualization, self-worship uh, um, self sometimes even, almost. Uh, and it's like some people go to gym and some people go meditate and, 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 or do this both at the same time. So, so is, do you see any tension maybe between... Uh, how spirituality is conceived of in, in modern or postmodern uh, world today, on the one hand, and uh, from a biblical or a, a tastic point of view, 
Mm -hmm. I mean, that, you're really, I think, touching on the what I thought was the, presented as the first distinction between spirituality directed to improve the self in some way. And yeah, I think there's obviously a, a tension here in the sense there's a clear difference. That for someone on this side of that particular boundary, the main point of, of the faith is to be, heal the world, tikkun olam, to use the Hebrew expression. And, but I think it would be a big mistake just to, as it were, neglect totally as utterly uninteresting because things are revealed about what the fullness of life can be like also in context where people are trying to become just better, higher, fuller human beings. See, you know, we want that they may have life and have it more abundantly. What does that mean exactly? Well, we're unpacking what that means in history as we go forward. And we must, you know, just as work, the work of realizing the kingdom can be something done by people outside the church alongside us, so the work of discerning what the fullness of life can be also can be helped merge out of people with this other kind of spirituality. But, you know, there's, you know, uh, I was really intrigued when you mentioned that, like in case of some of your, let's say, Jewish friends who are atheists, that they uh, still have some connection to, a, a, let's say, a moral source or yeah. something that motivates them to yeah. actually um, act in, a, in, in a way that um, is in, in tune with divine will, as, as yeah. a believer would phrase it. So, um, w would you... Um, in my experience, often these people don't want to be uh, reminded or, yeah. or don't want to be seen as anonymous Christians or um, somehow yeah. um, they want to um, um, be autonomous in that yeah. sense. So, so would, you, would you comment on that? Yeah, I can understand that reaction to the, you know, the runner concept of anonymous Christian. It's kind of capturing them or recruiting them, as it were, against their will. And that's not how I see it exactly. I mean, Christians are people who follow the gospel, right? But what is it to build the kingdom of God? I guess what I'm saying is that kingdom is not only built by Christians. There are Christians and non-Christians are in building it at this moment. There are Christians and non-Christians that are tearing it down in different ways at this moment, right? That they, the boundary between those building and those deconstructing or unbuilding is not the same as the boundary between Christians and others, right? But, I mean, if we try to annex them by saying they really are deep down Christian, I think we're, we're putting it the wrong way. It, it's not really understanding how it seems to me that God works through human beings in general and, you know, very mysterious ways to use the old, old expression, ways we don't fully understand. I think in Catholicism, 
It was uh, sometimes the spirituality uh, seen as something which is just for the monastery, for the monks, and so for the better Christians, for the professional Christians. <laughs> and uh, um, it was the reason why the uh, Reformation yeah. was uh, against. Ne? It was uh, something very suspicious, uh, the spirituality. And I think the ref in the tradition of Reformation, the spiritual dimension of Christianity has moved into music. The spiritual, spiritual dimension of Bach, Schitz, and all this. So in the music was preserved this dimension of uh, dimension of, of spirituality in Christianity. And uh, uh, in the Middle Age, uh, when uh, the punishment of uh, of uh, interdict was misused, and uh, sometimes it was something like the general strike of the clergy. So, uh, the, in that time, the lay people uh, have to discover their own uh, direct connection with God. When the clergy was in the, in the general strike, so it was a time when the lay people have to discover their own way through, through, through the spirituality. Uh, and then uh, the Via Moderna and Devotio Moderna was born and it was uh, something that was not just for the uh, monasteries but for the lay people. And it was one of the source of, of, uh, uh, of reformation but also on the Catholic reformation. Uh, um, so I think this is, uh, is also this, uh, this history of uh, spirituality and now maybe that, uh, uh, that it is also the reason uh, when the spirituality is so popular uh, that uh, uh, the clergy and the institutional church is not so, it's not in general strike, but it's in crisis. <laughs> so uh, the people are looking for this uh, special way to God through uh, spirituality. But there's a danger, there's a temptation that uh, spirituality will be just a hobby, uh, just for, for, for the leisure time. Uh, I will go uh, one, one Saturday to sauna and the next Saturday to meditation. <laughs> and I think uh, that it's very good that here this uh, movement of, uh, of, of the meditation uh, stress uh, the importance of meditation for our, uh, for, for our whole life. This is not just one activity for some free time. Uh, it is style of our perceiving uh, of, uh, of the world. It is our attitude to the reality. It is something which should transform our activity, our way of thinking, our way of life. And that is not just this moment, this five, minute of, of five minutes of uh, meditation is very good, but if there will be all, it will be for nothing. It must be the source of, uh, of, of, of uh, something which can transform our life as such.